Well, Father, as we go into chapter 13, I pray you would continue to pour out the truth before us and, and give us ears to hear and to receive what you have. And Lord, I am I'm excited because once again, I, I continue to be amazed at your word. What some might consider... Uh, <laughs> Exhausting because we keep going back and forth between Job and his friends as they're working this all out. I, I am so we're we're so blessed, Father, the way that you pour truth out in the Scripture and the way your Spirit brings things to light and helps us to grow and learn. And uh, tonight is no exception to that. And so I pray a blessing on your Word and that we'll be encouraged and enlightened, strengthened, and uh, that your Word would not, Father, come back to you empty. Bless this time we have in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we're on an island surrounded by water, but I've got to ask the question, how many of you get seasick? So there are a number of you that, that, that get seasick. Well, that's, that's good to know. I'm not the only one. My first whale-watching trip, I'll never forget. I was in the fifth grade, Southern California. Not a whole lot of whales right along the coast, at least where I live. And so we went up to Long Beach and out Long Beach Harbor. It was a gray, cold, rainy, windy day. We got out on the boat, and I was so excited. I mean, fifth grade, just just freaking out. Couldn't wait to see whales and be out on a boat. And I, I hadn't been on a boat in my life other than a little rowboat. So this was big time for me. And we got out to the harbor and climbed out on the boat, and you know the kids were all excited. I spent about the first ten minutes just loving it. And the rest of the time hanging over the side. You know, just, ooh, just seasick. And I, I, really, I thought about that when I was studying, because with Job, and you'll see this tonight, you might get a little queasy. Because he goes up, and he goes down. And then he comes up, but then he goes down. And it is this up and down, up and down process of Job thinking through life, trying to understand what's going on to him, his friends, you know, coming down hard on him, but then he rises up in these statements of hope, then he crashes down into troughs of despair, and we begin where we left off, right where we left off on Sunday morning, where Job crests on a wave of hope. He makes that great declaration in chapter 13, verse 15, "...though he slay me, I will hope in him." Nevertheless, I will argue my ways before him. This also will be my salvation. For a godless man may not come before his presence. I know he'll defend me. I'm going to speak to him. I'm going to trust in him, even if he takes my life. I'm still going to believe because this is my salvation. What is Job? My faith. Faith in the Lord. I trust him. And through this whole thing, Job never ceases to trust the Lord, to have faith that somehow God is going to make right out of all this wrong. And with this statement, as we talked about Sunday, all bets are off. Satan loses the wager. But Job doesn't know that. And I want to make that clear. Job is not aware of what's going on in the spiritual realm around him. At least he doesn't indicate that he's aware of it. He doesn't know about the bet between the Lord and Satan. He's rocking back and forth in this queasy state of turmoil and and these words of hope come out of his mouth. Verse 17, continuing. Listen carefully to my speech and let my declaration fill your ears. Behold, now I have prepared my case. I know that I will be vindicated. Who will contend with me? And he's speaking this to his friends. Who who will contend with me? You You want to argue this out? For then I would be silent 
and die. If I could just get this off my chest, Job is saying, then I could be done with it all. If I could just get this worked out, then I could die in peace. And with this, Job begins to sink again. But even in the sinking, I want you to notice what he does. He does the right thing. As he's going down, he turns his attention immediately to the Lord. Do you do that? When your life is beginning to head into the pit, when you realize that that, that things are are going south on you, that, that depression or despair is beginning to come on, do you immediately cry out to the Lord? Because that's where Job does. He turns his attention to the Lord and it's the best thing we can do. When we're beginning to go down, is turn our attention to Jesus. Verse 20, speaking to the Lord now, Job says, only two things do not do to me. And then I will not hide from your face. Number one, he says, remove your hand from me and let not the dread of you terrify me. And number two, he says in verse 22, then call and I will answer. Let me speak, then reply to me. Job makes two requests of the Lord here. Request number one, don't crush me. Don't crush me. He says, remove your hand from me. Let not the dread of you terrify me. This is all too heavy-handed, he's saying. I, I, am, I am being crushed under the weight of your hand. Please, please remove this from me. Take your hand away. He's despairing of that crushing weight. God's hand can be heavy. God can crush. In fact, Isaiah one twenty-eight, the prophet says, transgressors and sinners will be crushed together. And those who forsake the Lord will come to an end. Oh, God can crush. But here's the thing to remember, especially when you're feeling that heavy weight of depression or despair. It is not God's intention to crush you. God doesn't want to crush you. He wants to claim you as His own. For the same hand that can crush, that has all that power, is a hand that has, Isaiah tells us, Isaiah 49.16, has your name inscribed on His palms. Behold, I've inscribed you on the palms of my hands. And I've shared this before. What is on the palms of His hands right there next to your name? Nail scars. Scars of the cross. The hand that could rightly crush sinners crushed Jesus. Sunday morning, a brother came to me after the the teaching and, and he said... Now, who killed Jesus? Who killed Jesus? If you're here, you, you may have heard me make the statement that God slayed Jesus. Jesus was slain, was killed by God. And this obviously ruffled my brother's feathers a little bit, but he was thinking about it. He said, who, who? He just wanted to hear me say it again. And I said, God did. And he said, I'd never thought about that. Indeed, I'll, I'll be honest with you, when the words came out of my mouth, it scared me a little bit. You know, sometimes I'm rolling along and I'm teaching and the words are just kind of flying out of my mouth and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I don't know, several sentences ahead in my head of what's coming out of my mouth and then I'll hear something come out of my mouth and go, wait a minute, did I mean to say that? And it was one of those moments where in a split second in my head I went, God slayed Jesus. Yes, He did. And continued on. And this, this man said, so God killed Jesus. And the answer is yes. Don't you see it had to be that way? It was not the Romans. It wasn't the Jews. It wasn't even our sin 
that held Jesus to the cross that pinned Him there. It was the hand of the Lord crushing the Lord to deal with our sin once and for all. Well, give me Scripture, chapter and verse for that, Pastor. I can do that. Isaiah 53, verse 10, the Lord was pleased to crush Him. Isaiah didn't prophesy that Rome would crush Him or that the Jewish people would would crush The Lord was pleased to crush Him, putting Him to grief if He would render Himself as a guilt offering. Because Jesus was crushed, we are claimed. And that's the deal. Job says, Don't crush me, Lord. But the second thing he says, Don't close me out. Verse 22, Call and I will answer. Let me speak. Then reply to me. Don't silence me and and don't be silent is what Job is crying out to the Lord. Let me speak and then give me an answer. Let's dialogue. Let's talk together. And you know what's wonderful? That's exactly what God is doing. Through this whole process, the Lord remains patiently silent, waiting while Job speaks. He's allowing Job the freedom to speak all that he needs, to say whatever he wants to say. And Job is brutally honest, as we'll see. Job says some things that even make me a little uncomfortable, thinking about, could I say that to God? Could I speak these words to the Lord? And yet Job does. And the Lord listens and waits and allows him the freedom, and the Lord will give answer. He does exactly what Job is pleading with him to do. Aren't you thankful that he doesn't cut off your prayers? I mean, isn't it good news that none of us have ever been in the place where we're praying a prayer, maybe we're praying a little foolishly or we're praying a little selfishly or whatever, and as we pray, suddenly there's a voice from heaven saying, would you just, Spencer, that's enough! Stop already! I know how this feels to be a father when all the clamor is going on in the house. And my kids will tell you there is often a point in the evening where I've just heard too many words in the day. And my children have heard me say, no more talking. Naomi. I can't hear any more right now. But the Lord never does that with us. He never cuts us off. He never shuts us down. He wants us to pray. He wants us to talk to Him as long as it takes for us to work out whatever we're working out, to to struggle through whatever we're struggling through. He's patiently waiting and listening. Oh, not passively. He will give answer. But He allows us the freedom to speak to Him. I, I love that about our Father. Psalm 18, verse 6, In my distress I called upon the Lord and cried to my God for help. He heard my voice out of His temple. And my cry for help before Him came into His ears. And Peter quotes Psalm 34, 15. In 1 Peter three twelve. he says, For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and His ears attend to their prayers. And so, though some people would bemoan God's silence, sadly, well, he never speaks. I mean, just to be so quiet. What, you know, we need to be thankful that he is willing to give us the time to say what we need to say. And that's the way it is with Job. That's why it's going to be all the way up until the late thirties, late chapter thirties, before God begins to speak. He is allowing Job to speak it out. Verse twenty-three. Job says, "How many are my iniquities and sins?" He's asking God this question. 
Make known to me my rebellion and my sin. Why do you hide your face and consider me your enemy? Will you cause a driven leaf to tremble? Will you pursue the dry chaff? He's saying, look, I'm nothing but a little leaf here. I'm not, I don't, why are you pursuing me? What's going on here? Verse 26, For you write bitter things against me and make me to inherit the iniquities of my youth. You make me to inherit the iniquities of my youth. Have I sinned so much, Job is saying, that I deserve this pain? Or are there past sins, sins of my childhood, that are just now catching up with me? Is that what's going on? Job is raising an interesting issue. The issue of unconfessed sin. It's an issue as old as history. That people struggle with. Let me ask you, have you ever been haunted by old sin? Are you sometimes even today? Maybe something you did years ago and you haven't thought of in a long time and suddenly it just pops into your mind and you go, ah, why did I have to remember that? Why do I have to think about that? Stuff crops up like an unwelcome and unexpected guest in your thoughts. What do you do with it? The psalmist said in Psalm 25 verse 7, Do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your loving kindness, remember me. Don't remember what I did. Remember me. For your goodness sake, O Lord. But as Job goes through all the questions of his suffering, he's apparently now beginning to wonder, is it old sin? Maybe old unconfessed sin? From my youth, from my childhood? Is that what I'm reaping the benefits of now? Go on a little bit here. Verse 27. You put my feet in the stocks and watch all my paths. You set a limit for the soles of my feet while I'm decaying like a rotten thing, like a garment that is (laughs) moth-eaten. He's so descriptive. You put my feet in the stocks, and we're not talking the Tao. (laughs) You put my feet in the stocks. I am stuck here, Job says, in a rotten place. I'm in the stocks of condemnation. My friends, now remember what his friends have been saying to him. Eliphaz started out saying it must be sin. It must be some old sin that you're not aware of. Bildad comes along and says, you're sinning right now. Zophar jumps on that bandwagon and says, oh yeah, it's got to be. You're you're, you're sinning in your arrogance right now, Job. Eliphaz is about to do the same thing. So is that it? He's hearing so much. You're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a sinner. This is because of your sin. I'm wondering if maybe Job isn't starting to think, is that true? Is it because I sinned? Is it the old stuff that I can't even remember? He is stuck in the stocks of condemnation. Now sin and that condemning nature seem to be getting a foothold, if you will, on Job. And he's wondering if that's not the culprit for all his suffering. We know what the truth is. It's not. We know, in fact, what's going on behind the scenes. This is a move of the enemy to discourage Job into cursing God. That's what it's all about. It has nothing to do with anything Job did. But Job is beginning to wonder. I I would wonder. Would you wonder? What have I done to deserve this? And the weight of despair keeps tugging Job downward as he sinks further into this trough of sorrow. Chapter 14, verse 1. He says, Man who is born of woman is short-lived and full of turmoil. Like a flower, he comes forth and withers. He also flees like a shadow and does not remain. You also open your eyes on him and bring him into judgment with yourself. 
Who can make the clean out of the unclean? No one. And Job's right. He's touching on this reality of the sin nature of man. And by the way, Job's question is one of the loudest rebellious claims of our day. His question in verse 4, Who can make the clean out of the unclean? I mean, even if it is old sin, who can fix that? It's not fair. How can God condemn someone who is born sinful? How can God condemn someone who can't help it? It's not fair to me for me to be judged if I was born this way. Where have you heard that comment before? What lifestyle have you heard that applied to? I was born this way. Homosexuality. Hey, I was born this way. How can God condemn it? Guess what? We were all born sinful. That, that is... Theology 101, Psalm 51, verse 5, David says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Job is touching on, as he says, who can make the clean out of the unclean? He's touching on a great theological truth, one that David repeats and is honestly repeated throughout Scripture. It's very simply this. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. We're sinners, gang. That, that's the way it is. Culture, culture says, cool. That's the way you are? Then let's just kind of live and let live. The Father says, you won't live. It'll kill you. There's a problem. You cannot just ignore the sin nature that you have. And we all have it. From the person who claims, well, if I was born gay, that's not my fault. How can God judge that? Well, then there's a guy who was born an alcoholic. Well, that's not my fault. How can God judge that? Well, I was born a murderer. You know, it's not my fault. I started with puppies and I moved up to human beings. You know, I'm sorry. It's just the way I was... Hey, we were all born sinners. Every one of us. Which is why Jesus says, you got to be born again. You got to be born a second time, born rebirth to a spiritual life. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now, some of you might say, but I've been born again and I still feel stuck in the stocks. I gave my life to Jesus. I did the baptism thing, I follow him, but I still have this ancient sin that's haunting me. What do I do with that? How do I deal with these things that keep coming up into my brain? Simple. Confess. If it comes to mind, confess it. Every single sin, well, you know, if it pops into your brain, maybe you need to confess it. If it's something you've never talked to the Lord about before and it suddenly you think about it, confess it. Well, so, so that I can be clean? No, so that you can get it off your chest. So that you can let it go. Because the reality is, and check this out, the reality is you're already clean if you have faith in Jesus Christ. It's a game the enemy plays to remind you of the old sin. And the the wonderful option the Father hands us is, well, that's fine. If the enemy reminds you of an old sin, confess it to me and we're done. Get it off your chest. Let it go. Keep your finger there. Look over quickly in 1 John chapter 1. I grew up, and I don't 
blame my family for this, my parents, uh, my church even necessarily, but I grew up with a, with a mentality that if I sinned, for every sin, I needed to make sure and stop and confess that sin. And as I got a little bit older, I started to get worried because I thought, well, what about the sins I missed? What if there are some I never confessed? What if there are some old, unconfessed sin in my life and Jesus comes and goes, ah, but Rick, you never asked forgiveness for that one. (laughs) You need to move to that line. What about that? Well, John answers it beautifully. 1 John 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. And, watch this, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What John is saying is, confess that you're a sinner, man. That you're a sinner, woman. Confess it. And you will be cleansed from all unrighteousness. This is not a point-by-point, sin-for-sin confession. For it's, it's confess that you're a sinner. He goes on and he says, If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Pretty straightforward. In chapter 2, John writes, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, and He Himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. The propitiation, you remember what propitiation means? Bible students, what does it mean? Hmm? It takes away, I heard atonement, I heard what? The appeasement of God's wrath. Well, that's good. Propitiation appeases God's wrath, but listen, not like atonement. Atonement is covering. Propitiation is cleansing. A complete cleansing. Jesus Christ is the propitiation. So we're completely cleansed. I read an article just this, uh, just yesterday that was amazing to me. I'm fascinated by what I read about uh, Islam and the teachings of the Muslim faith. I'm fascinated not in a way that I think is cool, but I just it, it blows my mind that people believe this. It really does. In a Muslim sermon that was aired on Hamas TV... January 1st, 2010. This Muslim cleric was describing the six rewards of the Shaheed. The Shaheed is the martyr, the suicide bomber. The person who kills themselves in the service of Allah. The Shaheed. Six rewards, here they are. He receives 72 dark-eyed virgins. I won't tell the joke. Secondly... (laughs) He receives, (laughs) if you want to hear a joke about that, ask me later. He receives a crown of honor. That's the second thing he receives. Third, he is shielded from what Muslims call the great shock. That's judgment day. (laughs) It's going to be a great shock. He receives, number four, a place, or his place in paradise. Number five, and this is where it really gets interesting. He is a heavenly advocate for 70 family members. He's the advocate. If he sheds his blood, the Shaheed now gets to advocate on behalf of 70 of his family members. It gets worse than that, number six. He's forgiven his sins with the first gush of his pure blood. His blood, quote, his blood will testify for him before Allah. Do you want your blood to testify for you? Absolutely amazing how twisted 
You know, the, the three great religions of the world began with Judaism. And the Lord said, through the Jewish prophets and to the Jewish people, there's got to be a sacrifice because you are sinful. You are sinful naturally. It's not just the behavior. There are sacrifices for sinful acts as well. But annually, Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, you've got to bring and sacrifice on that day to cover all of your sin because you're sinners. So we learn that in Judaism. Along then comes Christianity. flows out of Judaism. And Jesus becomes the Lamb who was slain. You all understand this. Islam comes along and, and claims to be part of that. Claims on the one hand to be an offshoot of Christianity and, and, and Judaism, pulling things from both. And yet the teaching is so absolutely out in, in left field. It's amazing. The blood of the martyr cleanses himself. His blood testifies for him before Allah. The book of Hebrews chapter 12 verse 22 tells us, You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Abel was innocent in his death. Jesus' blood is better. Why? Because Abel was a sinner. Jesus was perfect. And what all works-based religion fails to recognize is this fact. Man's blood is tainted. We are sinners. Even innocent Abel had tainted blood, which is why Jesus' blood speaks better because it is absolutely perfect. You don't have to carry around unconfessed sin. If you have a sin popping up in your head and it's bothering you, tell the Father. It's not going to surprise Him. Tell the Father, get it off your chest. But don't worry that you might have missed one along the way because His blood is sufficient. This is the potency of Jesus' blood. Sufficient to cover all your sins, all unrighteousness, even, John says, that of the whole entire world. If every person who ever lived came to Jesus in faith, His blood would be sufficient to wash all of our sin. That's huge. And that's our Jesus. Well, back to Job. Verse 5 of chapter 14, he goes on, he says, Since his days are numbered, or determined, the number of his months is with you, and his limits you have set so that he cannot pass, turn your gaze from him that he may rest until he fulfills his day like a hired man. Job is still in the depths here. But something begins to happen that's very cool. There's truth in the trough. He's in the depths of despair, but he begins to find truth there. And I found that that's often the way it is. It's often that revelation comes in desperation. Because it takes desperation for us to still ourselves long enough to hear revelation. It's not that it has to be that way. I believe the Lord would give revelation to us any time we would come to Him. But often it happens in desperate times. The apostles were in the upper room during the resurrection. This hit me this week. Think about this. They were in the upper room, huddled together, scared to death, upset, depressed, despairing, while Jesus was walking out of the tomb at the precise same moment. They were in despair and resurrection is happening. 
And it was in their despair that Jesus showed up and said, Guys, here I am. Paul wrote some of his most inspired revelatory letters from prison. In a place where you would think you'd be in desperation and despair and hardship, Paul's writing to the churches and, and, and it's blessed churches for 2,000 years. Or what about the Apostle John? Was in exile when he wrote in Revelation 1.9, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus... I was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice that sounded like the sound of a trumpet. John is in exile when he received the revelation of Jesus Christ. When the shiny veneer of superficial living... I heard this today, it's so sad. Michael Jackson, the coroner report came out on him. His eyebrows were tattooed. His lip color was tattooed. His hairline was a tattoo. His actual hair was very, was very uh, withdrawn and short, worse than mine. I mean, it was really, and so everything else was a wig that was weaved in. All it was all facade. The tragic story of his life is that he caught, got caught up in the facade. It was all about image. But behind the image was a sad and broken and falling apart man. When the shiny veneer of superficial happiness is stripped away, that's where we see reality. And that's where revelation often comes. Watch this with Job, verse 7. He says, There's hope for a tree. When it's cut down, then it will sprout again. And its shoots will not fail. Though its roots grow old in the ground and its stump dies in the dry soil, at the scent of water it will flourish. It will put forth sprigs like a plant. But a man dies and lies prostrate. A man expires and where is he? As water evaporates from the sea and a river becomes parched and dried up, so man lies down and does not rise until the heavens are no longer. He will not awake nor be aroused out of his sleep. Now, Job is not making a pronouncement. He is talking to God and he's asking a question. The tree gets cut down and dies but springs back to life. Does man stay dead? This is what he's weighing. And in the trough, the truth is emerging. Gang... He's comparing humanity to a tree. Can, can, I mean, is this possible? Resurrection. Resurrection is this first truth in the trough. Are you saying that Job is realizing this? Not yet. The stump looks dead, he says, but life springs up. When? When does life spring up in Job's description of the tree? When the water comes. When the, at the scent of water. And if you take that to the living water, <laughs> what is it that brings about resurrection? Well, if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Romans 8.11 So like the stump that's been cut down, a man dies. But yes, resurrection is possible. Job is thinking this through. He's questioning God about this. Resurrection. He doesn't understand it, but he longs for it. And that's my point. I'm not saying that he's pronouncing resurrection. I'm saying, why can't it be this way? Is what Job says. 
Why can't man be like a tree? Why can't we get cut off, cut down, killed, and then rise again? Resurrection. He's longing for it, gang. He wants something better than what he's got. And in this longing, hope begins to rise again. He starts to come up out of the trough. Told you we up and down and up and down. He's coming up again. Watch this, verse 13. Oh, that you would hide me in Sheol, that you would conceal me until your wrath returns to you. Did you catch that? Oh, that you would conceal me until your wrath returns to you. The second great truth in the trough, conceal me until your wrath is over. Well, when does that happen? It's the rapture. The rapture of the church. The church is raptured. Why? So that we can be concealed until God's wrath is finished and His wrath returns to Him until He's done pouring out His wrath. There's there's hints of it here. The blessed hope, the raptured church, that we would be tucked away safely during the tribulation, during the time of the outpouring of God's wrath. Isaiah 26, verse 20. Come, my people, enter into your rooms and close your doors behind you. Hide for a little while until the indignation runs its course. But why would God rapture the church out for seven years and then bring them all back with them? That doesn't make sense to me. Because when a country goes to war, the ambassador is always brought home before the war happens. Because before God pours out His righteous wrath on a Christ-rejecting world, He will protect His own. We have that guarantee, 1 Thessalonians 5.9, that God has not destined us for wrath. If you're saved by His grace, why would you go through tribulation? The tribulation. You're going to go through little tribulations, small t. But the big t. The tribulation. God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. So Job is hinting at things here. Does he know it? I don't think so, but he's longing for it. He's longing for resurrection. He's longing for rapture, to be tucked away safely in heaven until the wrath is through. Verse 14. If a man dies, will he live again? All the days of my struggle, I will wait. Watch this, I love this. Until my change comes. Until my change comes. Another truth now comes out in in his longing. Renovation. Resurrection, rapture, renovation. Or if you'd like to use a word that's not an R word, glorification. My change, the glorification of his body. The translation of Job's mortal state to his eternal state. 1 Corinthians 15.51 We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. And this is marvelous, because Job is longing for these very things. Resurrection, rapture, renovation. Longing for this movement from his temporal body into the eternal. Again, I'm not saying that he knows about all this. I'm saying he's hoping for all this. And in his place of despair, this is what's coming out. He's thinking these thoughts that we tie in. We're looking back. You know, we're on this side of the resurrection of Christ. We look back and we see what Job is saying. We go, oh, Job, there is a rapture. (laughs) There is resurrection. There is a renovation. All this stuff that you're longing for in your heart of hearts, it's true. It's real. It's coming. He hints about these things even though he doesn't really know he's hinting about them. Ecclesiastes 3.11 tells us that God has set eternity in our hearts. 
And so it makes sense that when Job gets to the bottom of the barrel and the veneer is stripped away, that in that place, as Job begins to long for something and hope for something, it would be that which God has put in his heart. Those longings, that desire, that hunger. Verse 15. You will call, he says, and I will answer you. You will long for the work of your hands, for now you number my steps. Watch this. You do not observe my sin. My transgression is sealed up in a bag, and you wrap up my iniquity. What's that, Job? Redemption. Redemption. You don't consider my sin. What a great statement. Again, he's fighting with his friends, are impressing upon him how sinful he must be. And he's saying, wait a minute, I know God. I know how He deals with sin. He wraps it up. He puts it in a bag. He he takes it from me. He doesn't recognize it. He's talking about redemption. And so we have all these things. Rapture, renovation, resurrection, redemption. He doesn't know these things, but He longs for them. And He's hinting for them. And as Job talks about these, you almost can see him rising up a little bit. Faith, hope growing in him. But at the same time, his emotional and physical and spiritual pain drags him down, so he dips again into despair. Verse 18. But the falling mountain crumbles away, and the rock moves from its place. Water wears away stones. Its torrents wash away the dust of the earth, so you destroy man's hope. I told you, he's very honest with God. I've never told God, you destroyed my hope. Job does. Well, how can you get away with saying that? Because that's how he feels. And God understands that. You forever overpower him and he departs. You change his appearance and send him away. His sons achieve honor, but he does not know it. Or they become insignificant, but he does not perceive it. But his body pains him and he mourns only for himself. Now, please understand, Job is not cursing God here. He's expressing the heart of a man before hope entered the picture. This is a guy, pre-law, before Moses, before Jesus, before all that we understand now. This is a man back here, and all he really had was his immediate life. So hope was an evasive thing. Not completely understood, not anyway the way we're able to understand it. Now looking back, Here's a man there before the prophets came and began to offer the messianic prophecies and before Jesus filled up the measure of our hope. So he's expressing this and he's struggling with it and God in His grace and mercy is is listening. Alright, Job. Okay. I, I hear you. He's allowing Job this space. Now, we get to chapter 15. And Eliphaz has heard enough. Eliphaz, of the three, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, the senior statesman. He's the one that when he started out, he was somewhat cautionary and, and careful in what he said to Job. He's, you know, expressing that perhaps you have some old sin that you haven't confessed. Perhaps there's something back there you need to be looking at. And he's being diplomatic. Eliphaz is the theologian. He's the thinker of the group. But man, when he comes back into the ring for round two, he is swinging. I love Oswald Chambers' description of him. He says, One can almost hear him choking with indignation. (laughs) You can imagine him as he begins. (laughs) Just, uh, I I hardly can get the words out. He just, he can't believe what he's hearing. 
from Job. Chambers says, then follows the revealing of the unconscious egotism of the orthodox creedist. The orthodox creedist, the theologian. Dictatorially asserting the character of God. Then like a theological theological buzzard, he sits on the perch of massive tradition, preens his ruffled feathers, and croaks his eloquent platitudes. (laughs) This is why people read my utmost for his highest. Chambers is great. So here comes Eliphaz, the Temanite. He responded, verse 1 of chapter 15. Should a man answer with windy knowledge and fill himself with the east wind? Now, I just, I gotta, I gotta tell you what he's saying here. To fill himself with the east wind, literally it's to fill his belly with hot air. You got two options as to how a belly full of hot air makes its way out. As my son Hayden would say, it's either the attic or the basement. Okay? He's either talking about Job's words are like belching or breaking wind. That's, that is what he's saying here. And I tell you that, I'm not meaning to be crude. It, besides, it was Eliphaz who said it, not me. But here's this guy who, if you compare just the first thing he says here in round two to everything he said in round one, already he's just, it's not like the same guy. He has been highly offended here. Something has gotten his goat. He is upset. Something, Job said, is really bothering Eliphaz. He goes on and says, Should we talk with useless talk? Or with words which are not profitable? Indeed, you do away with reverence and hinder meditation before God. Now you see, when I listen to Job, when I read through what he says, as we just did, I, I, I don't hear I hear brutal honesty. I hear rough-edged beauty in his words. I hear a man in the midst of his pain working out his salvation with fear and trembling. That's what I hear from Job. Eliphaz hears great offenses. Eliphaz hears a man who has done away with reverence. What Job spoke, all those truths that we mentioned and the things coming out of Job's mouth, is rattling Eliphaz to the core. Watch this, verse 5. Your guilt teaches your mouth. And you choose the language of the crafty. Your own mouth condemns you, not I. And your own lips testify against you. Were you the first man to be born? Or were you brought forth before the hills? (laughs) Do you hear the secret counsel of God and limit wisdom to yourself? What do you know that we do not know? What do you understand that we do not? Both the gray-haired and the aged are among us, older than your father, Job. What's he saying? Eliphaz is apparently older than Job. And he's incensed that Job would would say the things he's saying. So Eliphaz is using his age and he's rubbing Job's face in it. I'm older. I'm wiser. How dare you say what you're saying to me? Now you might ask, well, didn't Job say something about age to Zophar? I mean, didn't he kind of call that out? He did. Job chapter 12, verse 12. Job said, wisdom is with aged men, and with long life is understanding. But there's a big difference between what Job said and what now Eliphaz is saying. Job is calling out the point that some things only come by experience. Eliphaz is saying, you're a whippersnapper. You're younger than me. How dare you speak to me in this manner? How dare you talk about God this way? Eliphaz is angry, he's offended, and he is playing the age card against Job. 
So, what's the matter with Eliphaz? What has happened between round one and round two that has this man so riled up? And I'll tell you what it is. Job's questions are threatening his theology. And if you've ever gotten into a theological debate, you know a few things get someone hot faster than threatening what they pronounce or what they say they believe. You, you want to undermine what? I'll, I'll find chapter and verse. Let's go at it, man. That's where Eliphaz is. He is the theologian. It's been said, I just heard this, I love this. It's been said a theologian is like a blind man sitting in a pitch dark room looking for a black cat that isn't there. And he finds it. That's the theologian. The theologian. Now, now don't get me wrong. I'm not anti-theology. I've talked about There are a lot of theological truths. Theology, the study of God is wonderful until the study of God becomes more important than God. Until theology replaces God as that which is most important. The theologian who becomes so focused on forming the right theological construct or finding the correct explanation and being able to give answer for everything that he misses the big picture. And what's the big picture with God? Grace. It's grace. It always comes back to His grace. When we lose the filter of grace for the sake of our rightness, we are like a blind man in a pitch dark room looking for a black cat and one's not even there but we're going to find it. And that's Eliphaz. Let me suggest to you the problem here and it's a problem with all three of the friends is that rather than simply being there for their hurting friend Job, they begin to take his words personally. It's not about them. Job in his arguments doesn't attack them. They attack him and he defends himself. It's not about them. His problems, his suffering, his struggles is not their problem. But they make it their problem. Why is that? Like I said last week with the Kia hitting the deer. That example. That Job's friends are like the deer caught in the headlights of Job's misery as it comes barreling up at them in the middle of the road. It catches them off guard. They don't know what to do with it. They're having trouble fitting Job's misery into their Sunday school mentality, their theological comfort zone. It's being smashed up by the misery of their friend. And they have to make his misery fit their theology. And that's why Eliphaz is so upset. Because Job is saying stuff that does not fit his theology. It's challenging everything that that he stands for, that that he believes in. Let me put it this way. If what Job is saying is true, then a man's righteousness can't protect him. And that scares Eliphaz to death. If what you're saying is true, Job, then all this framework of expectation I've built up over the years is flawed and could come crashing down. And I can't accept that. Eliphaz realizes there's a chance Job's fate could be his fate. That for all his head knowledge, he could lose his shirt. That for all his righteous deeds, he could die of a heart attack. Or be struck with cancer. Or worse, lose family in a sudden tragic accident. Good people don't want to hear that they're sinners. 
Why? Because if I'm a sinner, suddenly things like morality and truth and judgment and hell, all this stuff comes into play. I'd rather just be a good person and not think about those things. Religious people, like Eliphaz, don't want to hear about grace. Why? Because it takes their nice, tidy box of control, their, their sense of self-sufficiency in their religion, and it tosses it out the window and says you have one hope and one hope only, and that's complete dependency on Jesus Christ. Now, if I'm religious, I don't want to hear that. No, I'm a good person. Look, I, I'm at church every Sunday morning, two services. I come every Wednesday night. I'm on the worship team. I'm preaching. And all these things, it got to be worth something. And the Lord would say, those are great, Rick, and, and well done, but none of those are going to get you into heaven. I mean, you, you do realize it's just my grace, right? Yes, Lord. But if I'm bound in my religion or my church, man, don't tell me that anything here is wrong. Don't challenge this because this house of cards is coming down. Grace forces the hand of my faith to to completely believe Jesus for salvation. Eliphaz is getting rattled. Verse 11. Are the consolations of God too small for you? Even the word spoken gently with you. He's talking about himself. We've been so gentle with you, Job. No, you haven't, guys. You've been ripping him. Why does your heart carry you away? Why do your eyes flash? That you should turn your spirit against God and allow such words to go out of your mouth. He's offended. You're saying things to and about God no one should say, Job. The theology of Eliphaz is unraveling if Job is right in all of his assessments. Verse 14. What is man that he should be pure? Or he who is born of a woman that he should be righteous? Okay, now that's right, Eliphaz. You're right. Man's not pure. Verse 15. Behold, he, talking about God, puts no trust in his holy ones. God puts no trust in his saints. Well, that's not exactly true. But that's what Eliphaz is saying. How much less one who is detestable and corrupt. Man who drinks iniquity like water. And we're right back to Eliphaz's first argument. God is holy, you are not. God is holy. And that's true. God is holy. But Eliphaz's answer to God's holiness is man getting himself right. Man's righteousness. And we can't. And now he really digs into Job, verse 17. I will tell you, listen to me. And what I have seen I will also declare. What wise men have told and have not concealed from their fathers. To whom alone the land was given and no alien passed among them. The wicked man writhes in pain all his days and numbered are the years stored up for the ruthless. Well, who among the four friends is writhing in pain right now? Job is. And Eliphaz is saying, the wicked man writhes in pain. The ruthless man, he says, sounds of terror in his ears while at peace the destroyer comes upon him. He does not believe that he will return from the darkness. Well, Job had just said that. And he is destined for the sword. He wanders about for food saying, where is it? He knows that a day of darkness is at hand. 
Distress and anguish terrify him. They overpower him like a king ready for the attack because he has stretched out his hand against God. This is why, Job, you're in pain. Because you stretched out your hand against God and conducted, conducts himself arrogantly against the Almighty. Unbelievable. He is saying, Job, it's you. You are the wicked man. It's the only possible answer, theologically speaking. It's the only possible answer to this. You're the wicked man. Therefore, all this stuff is happening to you. And so, Eliphaz enters a damning diatribe of horrible sayings. Watch this. Verse 26. He rushes headlong at him with his massive shield. Speaking about arrogance. You're arrogantly rushing into your own judgment. Verse 27. He has covered his face with his fat and made his thighs heavy with flesh. What's he saying there? He's self-indulgent. You're self-indulgent. You're you're indulging all of your own, your bizarre little thoughts and your pain. Verse 28. He has lived in desolate cities and houses no one could inhabit or would inhabit, which are destined to become ruins. In other words, your life has been a facade. Your life truly is desolate. What you pretended to be before, that wasn't. Now we're coming down to the truth that you are in ruins. He will not become rich, nor will his wealth endure. And his grain will not bend down to the ground. He will not escape from darkness. The flame will wither his shoots, and by the breath of his mouth he will go away. You got bad breath too, Job. Verse 31, let him not trust in emptiness, deceiving himself, for emptiness will be his reward. What is Job claiming to trust? The Lord. Though he slay me, I will trust in him. I will hope in him. And here Eliphaz says, you're trusting in emptiness. I have a redeemer, Job says. I've got to have an advocate. There's got to be an umpire here, he says. You're trusting in emptiness. That doesn't exist. Eliphaz is throwing in his face. Verse 32. Comforting. Comforting friend. He has now the audacity after the death of Job's children to paint a picture of what Job can and cannot birth. Verse 32. It will be accomplished before his time and his palm branch will not be green. Huh? Infertile. You're infertile, Job. He will drop off his unripe grape like the vine and will cast off his flower like the olive tree. Job, you're impotent. For the company of the godless is barren and fire consumes the tents of the corrupt. (laughs) Fire consumes the tents of the corrupt. Job 1.16 tells us that the servant came running to Job and said, fire fell from heaven and destroyed everything you have. And now Eliphaz is saying, you know why? Because you're corrupt. And then in verse 35, they conceive, this is what you can birth now, Job. This is what the wicked person births. They conceive mischief and bring forth iniquity and their mind prepare, or literally their belly prepares deception. This is a man whose children, his children, were all killed in one fell swoop. And Eliphaz says, the only thing you're going to give birth to now, Job, is mischief, iniquity, and deception. Those are your children now. Wow. Man, you know, it's, it's one thing 
to be up and down with Job. You know, kind of seasick on the waves of, of his despair. Eliphaz comes along and rolls him like a rogue wave. Just smashes into the side of Job's boat. Takes him over. And one thing we can be sure of, Eliphaz is desperately trying to shore up his theology. It's the only explanation for why this guy would be so venomous and so on the attack against Job. Job, for his part, (laughs) he doesn't seem to care much about theology or religion anymore or the way things are supposed to be because Job knows he was never supposed to have all this tragedy happen anyway, but it happened. So here he is. And Job is reduced to dealing with one thing and one thing only. Truth. Job is reduced to the truth. Not theological constructs. Not some kind of religious parameters. Just truth. Now, again, theology can be truthful. Theology can be helpful to us if it points us to the truth. But theology is not the truth in and of itself. Here's the thing. In our lives, we can be up and down and up and down and up and down. Our li- I mean, Job's life, though it's all tragic at this moment, is a lot like our lives if we track it over time. Here we go in our faith and our hope. Right? We're riding high on faith. Oh, it's, it, we've been on a retreat. It's a Sunday morning. Everything is great. Worshiping and riding high. And then we get home and that afternoon the phone call from the doctor comes and we're in the trough of despair. And this up and this down and up and down. It's why fishing boats carry ballast. If you've seen the movie uh, The Perfect Storm, which I'm told by fishermen is, is completely bogus, but the boat has on it what they call birds, I believe it is. But they swing those long arms out to the side and they drop the big metal pointy things down into the water. And the whole reason they do that is to try and... They know out in the rough seas the Grand Banks or wherever they are, or up in Alaska, fishermen know we've got to have something out there that's going to give us ballast, it's going to give us some balance in all these waves. Because we know we're going to be going up and down and up and down. And so the ballast functions as counterbalances against the ups and the downs. Theology is like that. Theology can help us in the ups and downs of life. We put theology out to the side and it gives us a little bit of balance. It points us in the right direction. Theology says, go to the Lord. Theology says, you know, study the Word. Understand the Word. And it gives us more of a sense of balance so we don't roll. But we have something better than that. Better than counterbalances? Yeah. We have truth. Truth is far greater because it does more than provide ballast to keep us afloat when we're hit by the waves of turmoil. We have truth. Listen. Truth. Jesus said, I'm truth. So when I say we have truth, I'm again not even talking about ideas. I'm talking about Jesus. We have the way, the truth, and the life. Truth is a person. Truth is Jesus Christ. And what did that person do? What did the truth, Jesus, what did he do when the waves threatened to sink the ship? Did he throw out the counterbalances? No. He stilled the whole sea. I would rather have the sea stilled. Who gets seasick? I would rather just... Can it just be calm, man? That's that's better. 
And that's what Jesus does. He got up, Mark 4.39. He rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. What Jesus doesn't do, which is what the theologian tends to do, Jesus didn't grab an oar and say, Row for it, men! You know? He didn't come running out of the hold of the boat and begin shouting orders. Peter, batten down the hatches. John, stole the mizzen mast. <laughs> I don't even know what those things are. No. He stands up and he goes, Be still. You can't sink the truth. Theological debates happen because we're afraid of our truth unraveling, but you can't sink the truth. You can't poke holes in the truth who is Jesus Christ. If your faith, your security, your trust, your hope is in Him, all the rest of it, it can blow away. Because He is your salvation. If Jesus stilled the sea, do you think He has the power to still your life? Do you think even in the worst of times, though turmoil may be tugging at you, though heartache and hardship and disappointment and struggle is there, can Jesus still say, be still? Can He calm that sea? God says in Psalm 46.10, Cease striving. Just be still. And know that I am God. That's the faith we talked about on Sunday. Though He slay me, I will hope in Him. Psalm 55.22, Cast your burden on the Lord and He will sustain you. Listen, He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. If Eliphaz had truly been righteous, he wouldn't have been shaken. This wouldn't have been a problem. All of Job's words and comments and and struggle, Eliphaz would have been like, boy, you're really hurting, aren't you, man? Boy, I, I just, I'm so sorry this is so bad. But Eliphaz's faith is in his belief, not in the truth. Cast your burden on the Lord. He will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. And who are the righteous? Those who live by faith. Very simple. Habakkuk 2.4 Behold, as for the proud one, Eliphaz, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith.